Thanks, Kent. I'll make sure I put that check in your mailbox. <laughs> you know, he was, um, he was giving that gracious introduction. I was looking around like, who's he talking about? It's like... <laughs> so, um, as he said, um, my name is Bob Guevara, and I'm a member of the staff here. Um, just a, a show of hands. Um, how many of you know who I am? Wow, that's scary. <laughs> Okay, just a show of hands of who thinks they know me, but you're not really sure. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yes. And then for the rest of you who didn't raise your hands, you're folks who probably just don't care who I am. So. <laughs> but that's okay. It's okay. You know, I um, have to admit, this, this is a first for me. Um, there's a lot of years that I've had here at this fellowship. There's a lot of things that, uh, by the grace of God, that I have been allowed to do. Um, but I will have to admit, this is a first for me. And so, you know, I'll just say that you guys are an awfully scary bunch. <laughs> but, but this is what I also know, too, and this is what my experience has been um, with this fellowship. And well, you know, I guess one of the things in some ways I, I really find the more that I have been with the Lord, the more that I grow in the Lord. There's a lot of things that I can't hide. And one of the things that I can't hide is just my, my awe and my thankfulness to the Lord for who he is in my life, what he's done for me, what he has allowed me to be a part of. And what he has allowed me to be a part of is this fellowship, which means you because it's about people and it's about it's about lives and it's about doing life together and it's about growing in Jesus Christ and it's helping one another grow and it's coming alongside of each other if we're struggling or hurting or if we just need to to get back on track and I've had the privilege of being able to do that now for you know I can't even count the years now and, uh, and, and I'm still, even now, as I get to, to look at all of you here tonight, I'm humbled by that. And I'm so thankful for God's people. And I'm so thankful for all of you. Um, with that, just wanted to say welcome. And it's good to see all of you here tonight. So thinking about um, a summer night in July that you would decide that you would want to be here that you would want to come together with God's people, that you would want to come in fellowship, that you would want to come and study the Word together. It says so much about the work of the Lord in your lives. And again, I'm just, I'm humbled and, and I'm blessed to be able to have the opportunity to do that tonight. Um, one of the things I wanted to do is I wanted to just uh, welcome any newcomers that we may have here, if this is your first time here at Rocky Mountain. We are so glad that you're here. We'd like to be able to get you a visitor's pack. So if you would, um, just, you know, at the end of the service, let myself or um, one of the ushers or any of the folks at the information desk, if you'd like more information about the fellowship, we can get that to you. We'd love to be able to let you know about um, what this fellowship stands for, what we're about, and um, how you can get connected to the fellowship if you would like to do so. Also, if you don't have a Bible tonight, we would love 
to be able to give one to you. We have extra Bibles on uh, tables there in the back. Um, You'll definitely need one for tonight's study, but if you don't have one, it would be our pleasure to be able to give you one. So, and you can take that home and and make that your own. So, tonight, as um, I'm going to be sharing with you tonight, I want to just give you just a a real quick background about um, what I'm going to be sharing with you tonight and, and how it came to be. Back in May, I was uh, told that I was going to be uh, doing the devotions and to be doing the opening prayer for an event called the Boy Scout Court of Honor. And we do sponsor a Boy Scout troop here, and it's something that I have done before. And so I had a little bit of familiarity with it, but as I was um, told that this was something that I was going to be doing, I realized that, you know, I'm really not sure what it is that I should share with these young men. And so I happened to be talking to a friend of mine, and I knew that his son was an Eagle Scout. And this young man is now out of high school. He's in his second year of college and and such. But he happened to be home, and we had been talking about um, this young man anyways. And so I asked, I said, you know, can I talk to your son for a minute? And he says, sure. So he hands him the phone, and the young man's name is David. And I said, David, I'm going to be doing the opening prayer. I'm going to be doing the devotions for the Boy Scout Court of Honor. What do you think think would be a good topic? What do you think would be beneficial to the scouts? And without missing a beat, he said to me, a scout is reverent. Now, how many of you are Boy Scouts or have been Boy Scouts? Okay, so you know exactly what that means, okay? I'm just going to tell you right now, I have never been a scout. I have no scouting experience. So it was basically new to me. I know that they have a code and they have a Boy Scout law and the like. And so that's what that particular um, part of their commitment is in their Boy Scout code. Part of it is that a scout is reverent. And so I asked, I asked David, I said, why that? He said, because that is probably the least, at least in his experience anyways, it was the least talked about and probably the least understood of all of the different attributes that a scout would need to display. I thought, hmm, that's interesting. So with that, then, it caused me to take the next step of, okay, well, what does that mean? And so I did a little looking, and I decided to find out just to see what does that word reverent mean? And so this is what I found. In uh, one particular definition, it shows showing a lot of respect, very respectful, Expressing or characterized by reverence. Worshipful. Examples of reverent. A reverent crowd of worshipers. Two, a reverent tone of voice. Another definition that I found. Dex talks about honor or respect felt or shown. Deference. 
especially profound, adoring, awed, or respect. And so with that then, of course, it leads me to, well, reverence. Okay, what does reverence mean? What's, what's the, the definition? What's the, the common understanding of reverence? And so, again, same thing it shows. Honor or respect, felt or shown, deference, especially profound, awed respect. Two, a gesture of respect. Three, the state of being revered. Four, one held in reverence, used as a title for a clergyman. <laughs> And just by the way, you know, and it does happen. I've, I've been a pastor for a number of years. And one of the things that I always find amusing is for those people who don't know me, people who will send correspondence or maybe will call the church, um, or if I go to some place where maybe I've been asked to do an opening prayer or something like that, where I get introduced as reverend. <laughs> and again, I'm, I'm doing that same thing. I'm like, who are they talking about? <laughs> you know, who's, Reverend, I mean, my name is Bob, <laughs> okay? If you must, call me Pastor Bob, but, you know, generally Bob, or as some know me, Father Bob. Um, there's a story behind that that I'll tell you at some other time. Um, but Reverend, that's... And hopefully, too, as, as we continue on with, with what God has put on my heart, I hope that you'll understand, too, why... I understand where it's a sign of respect, but really, I don't think that that's something that no matter what, even a person who's, who's in the clergy, a person who is ministering for the Lord, for myself personally, just could be me, and I could be totally off base on this, but I don't really see that as something that should be bestowed upon a person. In our staff devotions today, chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, it Paul talking about that we are servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. That's what we are. How does that then translate to a title of reverend? I don't, I don't see it. I don't get it. So anyways, again, reverence. A feeling or attitude of deep respect the outward manifestation of this feeling, to pay reverence. Three, a gesture indicative of deep respect for the state of being revered. To regard or treat with reverence, venerate. One should reverence God and his laws, is, is just an example. And so with that, with that understanding, it, it caused me then to be able to look at, okay, what, what is it that would inspire awe? What is it that promotes? It, it made me think about the fear of the Lord. And so when I went to that Boy Scout event, I shared out of the book of Proverbs just briefly and just talking about the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And what does that mean? And that's where we now come back to the word of reverence. It's that deep reverence. It is that wonder, that awe. And so I, I shared with the boys, shared with some things about creation, about how that can inspire awe and how it points us to the God of creation, especially because obviously the Boy Scouts do spend a lot of time outside and, and being able to see the works of God's hands and being able to experience that and then being able to give honor and reverence to the God who created this all by his mighty power. 
So I shared that with them. But then since that time, in my own life, it caused me to stop and think. When I think about God's Word, what picture comes to my mind that would inspire awe? What is it that would give me a, a more profound sense about the majesty and the wonder of God? And so what came to my mind is what we're going to look at tonight. So if you would please, if you would open your Bibles to the book of Revelation, and we will be looking at chapter 19. And we'll be looking at verses 11 through 16. And as you're turning there, or as you're using your tablet or whatever electronic device you may be happening to use and such, um, I want to just, as we get ready to go into this, I wanted to just share something with you that comes to mind. And it's just something about the way that my mind works as we're going to be looking at Jesus Christ in a way that maybe we know, but that maybe we don't always appreciate or we don't always esteem in the way that we need to. So anyways, I don't know, how many of you have heard of this reality TV show that's called Undercover Boss? Okay, there's a number of you. Okay, well, that's good. So, again, so if you've watched that show, if you've heard about that show, then you understand the premise. Now, for those of you who never have heard about that show, don't know what it's about, don't watch TV, whatever it may be, simply put, what the show is about is that they go to, uh, the network goes to certain CEOs, certain corporations, and they ask if the CEO, the owner, some high-level executive, if they would be willing to go undercover and go out to where the employees are doing the work, to go out to the operations, to see what's really going on, to see what's really taking place. And it could be quite fascinating when they actually put on their disguise and they're doing their best not to, to be known. And, and oftentimes what they do is they try and just go in as, hey, this is a person who is being considered for employment. Here's a candidate that we're looking at. We want them to train with you. And so some employee or some supervisor now ends up working with this man or with this woman and showing them how the operation works. And it can take this particular individual who's undercover into many different situations. But the thing is, is that, is that when it's all over and when this person's week is done, then what they do is they call all the people that, that this individual has met, this executive has met during the week and calls them to headquarters. And then the person's true identity is revealed. And always there is great surprise. And for some, it's, it's very humbling. In fact, for some people, especially for those who have not performed well, it may even be uh, a time where they receive correction. But also, too, with that, one of the things, and it's one of the things that always just um, I, I marvel at, is that for those employees 
those supervisors who have done well. And maybe they have different, difficult life circumstances that they come from, but in spite of that, they're still doing their work in an exceptional way. And then what you see happen is you see them getting rewarded. And you see them receiving bonuses and trips and things that are very meaningful to them, like scholarships or family vacations or cars or whatever. But just something that in some way is an acknowledgement of what they have done. And it all comes from a person who they previously hadn't met that they really didn't know. And now here this person has the ability to be able to bestow upon them things that they could never achieve for themselves. And for me, one of the things in watching that show, it always just reminds me of God's grace wasn't something that they earned because they know. And, and when you see these people, many of them are just so humbled and they're just so moved and so touched by the generosity that's been displayed to them. And you see them express that. But for myself, always when I watch that, I'm just reminded of the grace of God and the goodness of God. So, but why do I mention all of that? What does that have to do with our teaching tonight? Well, just simply put, it's just that with what we're looking at here is we see a different view and we see a different picture of Jesus Christ than what we're accustomed to. So let's go ahead and let's look at what this has to say. And in the revelation of Jesus Christ, it is just exactly what the title says. It is not so much about future events and what's to come, although it certainly does cover that, but more importantly, about why we have and why it's included in Scripture is to be able to reveal Jesus for who He really is. And in these particular passages that we have here, what, what has led up to it is chapter 18, we see the judgment. We see the, Babel, we see the great Babylon, the harlot, that has caused the, the downfall of many and has led to the death of, of many of the saints. We see the harlot being cast down. We see judgment coming upon. And, and then those who were tied up with that world system mourning and weeping over that. But then a few weeks ago, Pastor Robert, who was teaching on the weekend, was teaching us also out of Revelation 19. And he was taking us through the first verse is in chapter 19. And with that, he's showing us where is the church at and what is it that we're doing while all of that is unfolding, while that destruction is taking place of the great harlot, of, of Babylon the Great, that what's happening in heaven is there is praise and there is worship. And it's Praise to the Lord for His great victory. It's praise to the Lord for His great power. And it comes from all who are gathered in His presence. And all of heaven is praising and worshiping the God who has been victorious in defeating this great enemy. And then after that, what comes next in chapter 19 then talks about the wedding feast of the Lamb. And once again, we're included in that. Because this is where Jesus, who has won his bride, now is joined to his bride. And who is his bride? His bride is the church. It's the saints. Who are the saints? That's us. 
It's those of us who have found grace in the sight of the Lord who have that relationship with Jesus Christ. And as we have been removed from the earth and as we have been removed from the wrath that is being poured out on a Christ-rejecting world, now there we are. And that's where we're at at that particular point in time. But after the wedding feast of the Lamb, then this is what comes next. And so let's go ahead and take a look here in, in chapter 9 and verse 11. It says, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. So heaven is, is opened. Once again, it's now in full view. And the writer John, who this vision has been given to, is pointing us to look. See what's taking place now. See now. Take a look and, and what he's pointing us to is now, is what appears next, is a white horse. And as it says, he who sat on him was called faithful and true. When we look at that white horse, it's symbolism. It's representing something. And in this particular case, what it's representing is victory. And those in John's time, those who would be receiving this letter, they would understand that. Because many conquering generals and many conquering rulers, when their army had been victorious in battle, when they had conquered a foe, when they had conquered a territory, that to show that the enemy was defeated and that they were now coming in to rule, that oftentimes the, the general or the king would come riding in on a white horse. Something completely distinct, something completely different than what everybody else would be riding on. And so that's what that, that points us to. But then it says, faithful and true. He who sat on this, this white horse is faithful and true. And so this is describing Jesus in his character and nature. Earlier in Revelation, it talked about Jesus as being the faithful witness. Jesus, when he stood before Pilate, that he gave a faithful witness. When Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus' reply to him was, it is you who say that I am king of the Jews. But really what he was really saying is, you're acknowledging that that's who I am. And so Jesus didn't hide it. Jesus was fully embracing who he was. And Jesus never wavered from that. Jesus always, even as he was being oppressed, even as he was being falsely accused, even as he was being persecuted, even as he was being led to his death, he never wavered from the truth of who he was, what he came to do. And he always, Jesus said, I came to testify to the truth. What is that truth? That I am the Son of God. I am the one who is who I say I am, King of the Jews. So he's faithful and true. In righteousness, he judges and makes war. Jesus, it was told in the scriptures, in the Old Testament, we see it in the Gospels, that there would come a judge. And this, this one who would come to judge, he would judge in righteousness. Jesus talked 
to his disciples about how all judgment has been committed to me. And we also then see in the New Testament in many different places talking about how that Jesus, when he comes again, he's going to come as judge. And so we see then this starts to lead us into a different picture of what we typically think about when we think about Jesus. That the one who came in humanity, the one who came in humility, the one who came as a servant, that when he comes back, he's going to come back as a victor. And he's going to come back as a judge. And it's going to be a righteous judgment. Because Jesus is righteous, because Jesus never sinned, because Jesus never faulted, Jesus never stumbled. That that's why he could be our sacrifice. That's why he could be the one who could represent us in taking our place and paying for our sin. Because he was the righteous one. And what does scripture say in Corinthians? It says that he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God takes his righteousness and he puts it to our account. And so when we see Jesus coming back, when he gets ready to make war, when he comes to do battle, he's going to come as a judge and he's he's going to judge rightly and he's going to come and he's going to make war. And I realize that for some people that may be something that Maybe you have some difficulty with that. Maybe that you find that unsettling. And certainly in some cases, we may very well now think of ourselves because of different things that we've had to experience over the last couple of decades or so that maybe some of us have become war-weary and maybe we're opposed to war personally. And oftentimes the reason that humanity, that nations and rulers will go to war oftentimes are not for good reasons. Maybe it's for pride. Maybe it's for power. Maybe it's for territory or wealth or, again, just to expanding dominion. Whatever it may be. Maybe even for so-called religious reasons. But oftentimes in humanity making war, It's not a good cause. But when Jesus comes, he has every right to make war. And what he's going to make war is upon the unrighteous. And he's just in doing so. Verse 12. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. With that in this symbolism, this figurative language that we're looking at, the eyes that we see, those eyes of flame represent Jesus and his intimate knowledge of us. That there's nothing that's hidden from him. That Jesus knows us in and out. Jesus knows our thoughts. Jesus knows our actions. Jesus knows the intent of our heart. He has perfect knowledge And so no matter what we might appear outwardly, no matter what we might portray to someone else, Jesus knows the true nature of our hearts. On his head were many crowns. 
This speaking to Jesus and speaking of his royalty. Jesus was always a king. As he came to earth, he was a king. And Jesus continues to be king. And we're going to talk more about that here in in just a few verses. But this is what it's speaking to. It's speaking to his royalty. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. And names are so important. A name would express something about the character, about the personality, an attribute about the person. In this particular case, obviously it's a secret. It's something that God has chosen not to reveal, at least at this time. Of course, in the presence of the Lord, we're going to know what that is. But for right now, it's kept a secret. And God does that. And he has every right to do that. But he also reveals a great many things to us. And that's what we're talking about here. About God revealing himself and God making himself known. But there are some things that God chooses to remain secret. 13, he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the word of God. As Jesus is on this white horse, as Jesus is coming to judge, as Jesus is coming to make war, he's clothed in a robe which is dipped in blood. And there's two schools of thought with that. One may be that the blood that this robe is dipped in is the very blood that Jesus shed when he was on the cross. But there's also another line of thought that says that this is the blood of those who Jesus comes to make war on. And in a little bit, as we go a little bit farther down, we're going to take a look at uh, some scripture that will point towards that. I happen to, just for me personally, I happen to believe that that particular one is correct, but it's something to be able to look at yourself, to be able to see for yourself. Verse 14, and the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. And so this is where we come in. Because as Jesus is coming back to take his throne, to be able to take his rightful place as ruler, to come as judge, to make war on the unrighteous, he's coming with an army. Now, it's not that Jesus needs any help. (laughs) He's perfectly capable of bringing about justice and making war. But we get to be with him. And how do we know that that's us? Well, because it says that the army that comes with him is clothed in fine linen, white and clean. If you look back up in verse 8 here in chapter 9, we said that this was a reference to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And verse 8, talking about the bride of the Lamb, it says, and it was... And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the, line, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And so this points to us that as we're watching these events unfold, as Jesus is revealing himself in all his glory and all his majesty, that we will be accompanying with him. And we too, as the picture goes, are going to follow him on white horses. Again, speaking of victory. 
Verse 15, now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. So we have this picture of Jesus as he speaks of his word being a sword. And as he speaks, we have this picture of this sword coming out of his mouth. One of the things that we can look at, and if you want to just turn there briefly, is turn over to the book of Hebrews. And in Hebrews, in chapter 4, in verse 12, it says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirits and of joints of marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And so it talks about the power of the word. And as it had said earlier about the name of Jesus, that he is the word of God. And how we saw that, that John in his gospel started out with that, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God and the word was God. Interestingly enough, too, that when we actually look at that, what it's saying is that Jesus was continually the word. Jesus was continually with the Father. Jesus was always the word of God. What you may not know also that when we talk about that Jesus was with God, it means literally that he was always looking into the face of the Father, that they were always looking face to face to one another. And if you don't have the very character and nature of God, if you don't have the essence of God, then how could you be able to behold God the Father in that way unless you were of the same like, if you were the same type? Of course, there are those who would dispute that Jesus is God, but some of the things that we see in here, faithful and true, the Word of God, these things that we see about the Word that comes forth from His mouth and the power and the effect that it has points to us that Jesus is truly God. God in human flesh, but also a great warrior and a great king. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. Does that make you think of anything? Hopefully so. So very quickly, turn over to Psalms chapter 2. Psalms chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast their cords away from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. 
the Lord shall hold them in derision. Verse 5, then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his great displeasure. I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree, the Lord has said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore be wise, O king. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all those who put their trust in him. A couple things that we see in that. We see God the Father speaking and talking about his son, the coming king. Talking about how that he would rule over the nations and to him it would be given to judge. The Holy Spirit pointing the kings of the earth and all who would be under their dominion to acknowledge the Son of God, to come under his authority and to acknowledge him for who he truly is, lest God's wrath be provoked. But then it closes out with, blessed are all those who put their trust in him. The last part of that verse Verse 15 now in Revelation 19. And he himself, will, he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. So last thing that we'll look at outside of this. Turn to the book of Isaiah and find chapter 63. Isaiah 63, verses 1 through 6. Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Bozrah? This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red? And your garments like one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. For I have trampled them in my anger, I have trodden them in my anger, and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. So remember what we talked about earlier about Jesus wearing a robe that's dipped in blood? Okay, this is one of those verses that leads me to believe that it's not his blood that that robe is dipped in. Verse 4, For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the years of my redeemed has come. I looked, and there was no one to help, and I wondered. Was there no one to uphold? Therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me, and my own fury it sustained me. I have trodden down the people in my anger, made them drunk in my fury, and brought down their strength to the earth. Again, more about a picture of who Jesus is. More about what he will come to do, that when he comes again, that he comes differently than he came before. 
verse 16, and he had on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That really sums it up. And they're really, to think about a king, what does that tell us? It speaks of royalty. It speaks of a monarch. It speaks about one who rules, about one who reigns. And with that, there is a realm that his reign, his authority that he exercises about where that realm is at. And so, so many times Jesus talked about, as he's here on the earth, he talked about the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of God is within you. That the kingdom that he was talking about is a spiritual kingdom. We think about the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In heaven, the Lord reigns. The Lord rules. And that which he desires, that which he speaks, that is what's carried out. That which is done. But Jesus came to bring the kingdom of God here to earth so that we could be partakers of it. And that expression, king of kings, means that he's supreme, that there is no higher ruler, that there have been kings among men. There were kings before the nation of Israel was established. There were kings in the nation of Israel, but that Jesus always has been a king. We saw a reference to it there in Psalm 2. We see it in other places in Scripture, talking about that there would be a coming king and that this king would come and one day take his rightful place, the throne of David, to be able to reign, to be able to rule in all majesty, with all wisdom, with all power, with all righteousness. Jesus is that king. But what we also know is that king, when he was here on earth, clothed in humanity, but still yet a king. Born a king, worshipped as a king. Even Nathaniel, when Nathaniel was introduced to Jesus, and Jesus said, I saw you sitting under the tree. And Nathaniel said, you are the king of Israel. Jesus never, Jesus never disputed him with that. But Jesus tried to downplay that because the people had the wrong idea of what their coming king would be. They thought their king would come and relieve them of the oppression of the Roman Empire. That they would be established, that they would be exalted, and they would be the ones in charge. And Jesus had a totally different picture of what the realm and the reign of the kingdom of God is all about. But as we've seen in these verses, when he comes back again, he's going to come back and he's going to take his rightful place. So he's king of kings and lord of lords. Lord, what does that mean? It means master. 
The, the Greek word is kurios, and it means one who owns everything. What's interesting about the Lord, it's not just a pronoun. It's not just something that we use to be able... Some, some ways it's used like the word sir, but when we put it the Lord Jesus Christ, it's talking about one who owns everything. One who has complete authority. The interesting thing about Jesus that in his lordship and that which he purchased because we are his purchased possession if we trust in him. But what was it that Jesus did? Jesus paid a price in his own blood to purchase his possession. But now he has the right because he tasted death for us, because he took his sin upon us, that we then rightfully should acknowledge him as Lord. With this, as I, as I get ready to close, just briefly, I wanted to be able to, again, just kind of just share you a personal experience of mine about how this came to be impressed upon my heart. And for myself, it's something that I acknowledge, that I know that for myself and in my life, as blessed as I am and as what I get to be witness of and participate of, I realize that there's so much more that I could grow in in having reverence for the Lord Jesus Christ. And that was my heart in wanting to share this with you tonight, that you too would also, maybe it's something that you realize that, Lord, I, I do revere you, but I know that there's more that I could grow in. I know that there's more that, I could learn about you so that I would rightly give you the homage and the honor that you deserve. As we close and before we get ready to go to communion, just a couple things that I'd ask you to consider. First and foremost, as we've been talking about Jesus, the coming king, Jesus who's going to make war, Jesus who's going to judge in righteousness. Which kingdom are you in? Are you in the kingdom of the Son of God? Are you in the kingdom of darkness? There is no in-between. There is, I'm not sure. Either you are or you aren't. And Jesus made it very clear. He who is not with me is against me. He doesn't equivocate. And there is no fudging. It's either you're in or you're not. So have you come to that place of acknowledging that he is a king and he has rightful place to rule over our hearts and our lives? Second, do you know, if you are a child of the king, then do you know your citizenship? Do you know that you have all the rights, all the privileges, all the access, and all of the inheritance that comes with being a child of the king. That you have worth, that you have value, that you have purpose. Also, are you embracing your kingdom duties? That as citizens of the kingdom, what are we here to do? That until Jesus comes, that we are to be about proclaiming the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. And as that prayer said, 
your kingdom come, your will be done. The kingdom of God growing and expanding. That God wants to use the likes of us, sinful, fallen, still works in progress, and yet because of his spirit and because of his power that he can work through us. Why is it so important? Because judgment is coming and wrath is going to be poured out. And it's not going to be pretty. And there are many people around us who they don't know that they're in that peril every single day. And they're justly under the wrath of God. But what did, what did the Lord say? That he desires that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But who is going to tell those who don't know? Who is going to tell those who have that wrath hanging over them that there is deliverance, that there is redemption, that there is healing, that there is forgiveness. That's you, that's me, that's us. We have been empowered and we have been called and we have been equipped and we have been raised up. We have been given so great a Christ, a, a, so great a grace and so great a love but let's not keep it to ourselves. While we have the time, let's be faithful and true in our witness.